Welcome to another edition of Be There with Dali Loudspeakers, the podcast that looks at the stories and celebrates the minds behind great recordings in rock, roll, pop, soul, disco, electro and beyond. Be There comes to you from Dali, manufacturers of fine loudspeakers from Denmark, designed to take you to a nirvana of sonic fidelity, all in admiration of music. And these podcasts tie in with Dali's own music magazine, also called Be There and edited by me, Andrew Harrison. It's full of fascinating tales from inside the creative process, interviews with legendary producers and mixers and more. And you can get a free copy from the Dali Facebook page, facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers. I've got two guests with me today. Sean Pattenden is a graduate of the Smash Hits Magazine School of Music Journalism Excellence. When she was 18, she sent her fanzine into the editor and they immediately gave her a job. Sean has been writing about pop ever since for The Guardian, NME, Select in the Face, and she's also my co-presenter on our big sister podcast, Big Mouth. Hello, Sean. Welcome back to Be There. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now, we have listeners all over Europe. Can you explain to them what Smash Hits meant to pop music in Britain and, in fact, around the world as an institution? Smash Hits was a fortnightly magazine which, um, when I joined, had a circulation of almost a million every fortnight. And it was the kind of magazine that everyone read, but sometimes people read it under the copy of the NME. um, in secret. (laughs) So you have the very pompous, what we call the inky music press Mm. of the time because the ink got all over your fingers, um, which was about alternative rock. And then you had Smash It, which was like pop stars, but also sneaked in alternative rock in the news pages and lots and lots of jokes. Yes, it was was, was the... The, uh, the place where people were asked questions that initially seemed to be silly questions but were actually mm. very revelatory and tell you more about them than you thought. Yes, we called them curveball questions yeah. because the person wouldn't be expecting that sort of question and would be put on the spot and you would reveal something about them that would be unto, yes. hi- um, unto hitherto unrealised. Like, does your mother play golf and have you ever grown parsnips in a gumboot? Yes, would you sell your grandmother for rock and roll and what colour is Tuesday? What was your personal high point at Smash Hits? Well, I'm afraid I was indie correspondent while I was there and it was trying to shoehorn all the indie stars that I loved into the magazine. I was Bobby Gillespie correspondent there, I think, throughout my tenure um, because no one else wanted to do it. But he (laughs) just got in there and he got asked the What Colour Is Tuesday and loved it. So um, it it, it was my job, really, to get those little indie kids reading as well. Bullhead haircuts and shambling. Absolutely. Get them into into smash hits. Um, Also with us is Sophie Harris, who writes for Mojo Magazine and The Guardian in the UK. Rolling Stone magazine in America and she also broadcasts on BBC World Service and WNYC. She was the music editor of Time Out New York for a lengthy period and she has her own folk music project which are called Springfield. Hello Sophie, thank you for coming in. How Hello. are you doing? Do you know what I was just thinking with the, the Smash Hits chat um, I so I used to subscribe well, but what, was it called subscribing if you asked the news agent to reserve your copy mm. when I was Order a kid? Order it from your news agent. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and I used to, on the, the, this is, you know, and it's like, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I used to, re- I redid the picture captions, my own amusing picture captions. You used to write your own picture my captions. Copies. Wow. Wow. That's, that's I and that. I love that. <laughs> what could happen next? Yes, and then absolutely. did my own magazine at mm. school. And it, yeah, Smash Hits was was huge. So the music scene in New York in the in the 2010s or 20 teens when you were associate music editor of Time Out New York had it kind of recovered from the hangover of the Strokes and Interpol and all those kind of art bands of the noughties? Do you know I don't think it quite had and actually around that time I remember the beginnings was the beginnings of the sort of the first books about that whole noughties scene and photographers getting you know corralling all their mates and photos and let's yeah. get all of this ready so I think it was still a little bit hung up on that. 
Um, but there was, the, you know, the first signs of, of new stuff peeking through, like um, Vampire Weekend. I know I always bang on mm. about Vampire Weekend, but they're such a kind of quintessential New York band, and they do tend to release their records in the winter when it's all awful. And you're like, hey, but I'm in New York, everything's <laughs> yeah. all right Sunshine. after all. Yeah. Um, and I also, New York is just such, such a great city for music. Like it's it's a bit of a cliche, but it's absolutely true. You know, and and because it's um, a small, relatively small city, it's very easy to get to places like. Oh, hop on a subway. There you mm-hmm. are at this brilliant music venue, and then you can get the subway home, even though it's really late at night and everything's fine. Um, and also, um, where I was living at the time in Williamsburg, that was still really before it kind of turned into a theme park. It was still really fun for music. And there was the the Converse um, studio had set up, and there were lots of kind of happenings and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was, it was good. That's fun. <laughs> what, what was your personal proudest moment on Time Out New York? We asked Sean her proudest moment on Smash. What was your proudest moment on Time Out New York? Oh, man, that's a good question. I think, actually, it was pretty early on when, um, very sadly, uh, Michael Jackson was rushed to hospital. And then and I remember when we got the news that he had died and then I was whisked away to, uh, to the New York TV news station. I can't remember the name of the station now, actually. Um, Is it New York One? Yeah, something, New York probably One. Yeah. something like that. Um and I was talking about that and how everyone was so shocked. It was like there was a kind of white noise in the yeah. office and no one quite knew what to make of it. But it was, you know, f- for someone who had only just arrived in New York um, to be then plonked on the telly talking about Michael Jackson was uh, was surreal and fun. And then for weeks afterwards, all you would hear from cars driving around with the windows down was just constant Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson. and the Jackson 5. And that was really, really fun. Bit of a moment. Yeah. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about our heroes of studio craft and our favourite five seconds of pop, those amazing moments that make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And we're going to be adding them to a title playlist for the show, which we'll put up on the Facebook page. And Sophie is going to tell us what it was like to hear her favourite LP, The Beatles' White Album, as she'd never heard it before through lovely, big, Dali Callisto speakers. If you'd like a copy of Be There, the magazine, go to dali-speakers.com slash be there and we'll send you one free of cost. Our cover star on the next edition of Be There magazine is a legend of British music, Anne Dudley, the Grammy and Brit Award winning string arranger to the stars. Since her earliest work on ABC's luxury pop classic The Lexicon of Love in the early 1980s, she's become the go-to woman for an amazing orchestration for everyone from Elton John to the Pet Shop Boys to Seal to Rod Stewart, as well as scoring movies including Les Miserables, Black Book and The Full Monty. She's a rare female legend in a business that still somehow manages to be dominated by men, and she's just released an album of her sample-based music with the art of noise rearranged for piano, simply as if to prove that it can be done. There's a great profile of Anne Dudley in our next issue, but Sean and Sophie, you've both met her, and you were helpless before, I remember. The two <laughs> yeah, of you were, we were delighted. <laughs> Sophie, what, what do we love about Anne Dudley? You know what I loved about her in person and um, in terms of her arrangements is her... Um, she's so kind of not modest as in hiding a light under a bushel but just sort of quite softly spoken and yet still confident and assured and and she's talked about her arrangements her intention being that she wants to kind of you know add something without sort of interfering and and 
you know, kind of making a song and dance about it, as it yeah. were. And uh, she, there's just a kind of uh, subtlety and elegance and assuredness about what she does. Her arrangements are very em- empathetic and very uh, kind of integrated into the songs. They don't come and land on the chorus like a great big wedding cake collapsing on top of you. It's like she's dancing with it, is mm. how I would put it. You know, she's like, she's finding really the essence of it, as you say, and getting in sync with it, you know, and, and, and kind of moving with it. Yeah. Sean, uh, she cut her teeth in a very intense period in the early 1980s when she's simultaneously making very, very glossy pop with ABC, those all those classic singles mm. like Poison Arrow, um, and all, also the kind of extreme avant-garde as a member of the Art of Noise, which was basically discovering by doing how to make records out of samples. And simultaneously, she's contributing to, uh, you know, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood Pleasure Dome. She plays the piano intro on Two Tribes, that famous ding, 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 ding you know, which mm. has summons up all that kind of boat mm. on the vulgar sense of mm. East and West thing there. Um, it is unusual to find a person with such a breadth of musical knowledge and such a, a, an ability to inhabit different styles in the pop arena, isn't it? I think so. Um, I think, though, that what you find with people who can do orchestration, who are classically trained, is they're very good at jumping in at the deep end. They're very good at saying yes to something, not quite sure if they're going to do it, and just pushing themselves. Where I think pop stars like to have a bit of an ego and like to do what they're very comfortable with, thank you very much. So she comes in and she counterbalances that pop star thing of the ego with, yes, I'll have a go, yes, I will hit this. I don't know what it's going to sound like. You know, in that way that they were experiment, we'll buy a fair light, we don't know what it does yet. All those sorts of things. In that she is a great experimenter, but as Sophie says, she doesn't carry herself as such. Mm. Um, she is the most unassuming person, and then we'll just suddenly say, well, when I was working with George Michael, and you realise the breadth of people that she's worked with and the breadth of her talent. She tells a story in the feature of the magazine about having to hide with George Michael <laughs> in a branch of Spud You Like, the popular <laughs> baked potato <laughs> chain that was very popular in Britain in the, in the, in the 1980s. I love the idea of George Michael in the Spud You Like. I would uh, imagine it would be hard with his hair to hide yeah. bouffant at but time, Yes, but well, yeah. Yeah. maybe it was quite a large uh, Spud You Like. I, I don't know. Um, she also tells a very uh, amusing story about The Look of Love by ABC, which is her first big string arrangement. It wasn't her first recording, but it's the first time she'd w- worked with a full-on, you know, big orchestra. And there she is. She's in her, She's a woman in her early 20s, in the 80s, in front of the uh, a, a 40-piece orchestra in Abbey Road. And they're all looking at her for direction, somewhat sceptically. And the arrangement that she puts together is still, to my mind, is still her best one. It is euphoric, it is ecstatic, it is grand, and yet he's fully integrated into the song. Mm. And, you know, it fulfills the great duty of any pop song, which is you can whistle it as well as play it on a 40-piece orchestra. I thought that was, uh, to sort of picture yourself in that position was astonishing. But as we know, the insecure pop bands of the world say, we've got this song, but what are we going to do to make it better? We'll put some strings on it. And you can make an all right song much, much worse by putting strings on. You get Anne Dudley and you make a brilliant song even better and somehow she elevates it it never feels like she's putting in things that don't need to be there and it's all a sort of just the thrill of just putting some strings on she's doing it for a purpose and she'll pare it down as well as push it up to the max She's described how she's inspired by Nelson Riddle and the great Hollywood music, and you know, uh, she's also very inspired by Philadelphia Soul, that kind of glossy, upwardly mobile sound of the seventies when you know African American culture was becoming, uh, you know, it was about the good life. It wasn't. It was sort of breaking away from the civil rights era into the idea of 
luxury for everyone. And I can really hear that in the arrangements, particularly in that era. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those things, the, the kind of that Hollywood sound and the Philly soul sound. But I think with her, there's something almost a bit more richly grained to it. Like it it feels to me a bit more immediate. I always found Philly soul strings a little bit slick. Obviously, that's also the arrangements around them. Yeah. But with her arrangements, there's, there's a bit more kind of... Um, air in it if you like and uh yeah it just it just always feels a bit more uh, there's a bit more emotional punch in yeah. there well apparently neil Tennant from the pet shop boys thinks that she sounds like vaughan williams and she doesn't <laughs> think she sounds like vaughan williams she's where did he get that from i've no idea but there is I, I think there's a bit of truth in that and to an extent you can hear it in one of her best arrangements uh which we talk about in the feature which is getting away with it by electronic which is quite in its own way quite subdued it's not there's no uh, there are no flourishes there are mm. no kind of curlicues mm. and it's not massively emotionally overwhelming but it is a perfect string arrangement and she talks about how it really wasn't working until the engineer in the studio moved the microphones a few feet in the wrong direction and suddenly you've got the perfect feeling for that he record. brought them up didn't he? he it was it was making it was putting the mic slightly yeah above yeah Above the um, the players, and she was saying when she when she spoke to us all on, on Big Mouth and we bowed in her presence, <laughs> um, she was saying how that that kind of gave it more space and made it feel a yeah. bit more pastoral. Didn't I she? played uh, "Getting Away with It," a record that I'm familiar, you know, from bad headphones, frankly, because it came out when I was a student. Yeah. Bad headphones and bad speakers, and I played it again through a set of the Dali Oberon ones Ooh. that we've got. Wow, you know, just really kind of, um, and actually, you realise the extent to which it is a duet between the orchestra and um, the vocalist, which is uh, you know Bernard Sumner, but also Neil Tennant's there on backing vocals, and it just the whole thing just you you, you get this fantastic combination of great separation in that you can hear all the elements, but they're all working together in a way in a way that is orchestrated. You know, you feel like you're mm. hearing a kind of pop record that you. You don't really hear it all the time. Yeah, and of course there's that lovely outro at the yeah. end as well, which because it was played so much on the radio at the time, you you didn't hear the outro. And the first sort of few times that I heard it, I was oh, I'm really impressed. And you can, as you say, there's a sort of the classicism in it. The way that they're they're hitting those notes at the end is yeah. so precise, and you can imagine them doing. You know, when you see proper musicians playing, they've got like like violin face on and yeah. violin mm. upright posture and yeah it's wonderful another one of my favorite things that she did was she rearranged the entire lexicon of love album into a three and a half minute overture for orchestra so all the songs all the elements are in there as one would get when one went to the opera and this was performed before their live show and then it came out i think they put it on the b-side of all of my heart but you can hear in there that um Firstly, you can hear why these are more than just a regular pop song. Why there was something really kind of special was happening between ABC, a mm. post-punk band from Sheffield, and and Dudley and Trevor Horn and and the team in there. But also the conceit of saying we are going to treat this as proper art. We're going to treat it as opera, and we, and it will be delivered as such with an overture. It's fantastic. I think we should drop that onto uh, onto the title playlist if I can find it. We talked um, about uh, our own personal favourite string arrangements by Anne Dudley or not by Anne Dudley. Sophie, what's your favourite string arrangement in pop? You know what? It was a tough call between between two different songs. Um, but the one I'm going to go for first is Fly by Nick Drake. Um, and it was arranged by Robert Kirby. Um, and th that the record that it appears on Brighter Later um, has got members of, of the Fairport, Fairport Convention um, and also John Cale worked a little bit of magic on that record as well. But I think what I love about it is that 
as we were saying before, often people kind of pop the strings on to kind of give something to the mm. the song and and sort of amp it up a bit. You know, I've always thought it's a bit like a, a fluorescent highlighter pen. Woohoo, strings! <laughs> and I think with with Fly, it, it like it's so subtle. You know, and his his voice is so quiet and and soft, and and the 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 amount of longing squished into that song. Mm. And I was I was listening to it this morning actually, and remembering um, when it appears in the Royal Tenenbaums in a particular particularly moving scene when Richie Tenenbaum is, um, is on his way home with a shaved head having just discharged himself from hospital and he's lovelorn and that song comes on and it took me completely by surprise I'd loved that song always and it came on in the cinema <laughs> like a broken Were woman blubbing, blubbing crying in the yes oh, I was <laughs> Sean what's your favourite uh, string arrangement out there in the wide world of pop Cloud Busting by Kate Bush, I think would be nothing without the strings on there. It's a very difficult for me to listen to that song without crying at the end. Now, well, because of the video and all that sort of stuff. Yes, um, that's also it, quite vulnerable, isn't it? Da, 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 yeah, da, I guess. Da, da, yeah. I guess. Um, I, you know, you couldn't have it. You can't separate the two. They are so intertwined. But also, you know, there's the marching theme. <laughs> Oddly, it has, has a march to it. Uh, there are lots of disparate elements that shouldn't seem to work, and yet there's something about the strings, and it's about a relationship between a father and son, because Kate Bush doesn't always sing about herself, which is always so exciting to listen to, that there's something about trying to choose that emotion, and the strings absolutely perfectly capture that emotion of loss, fragility, and a familial bond rather than a romantic relationship bond. I think it's something about that which it just the the whole song works as such a whole. You can't pick out too many elements. They they should all be there. Almost a perfect tune. Well, we'll put that on uh, the title playlist along with "Fly" by Nick Drake and "The Look of Love" by ABC, and everybody can cry their eyes out as they listen to them on their lovely Dali speakers. This series of podcasts marks the launch of the brand new Catch One soundbar, bringing Dali's renowned high-end audio reproduction and exquisite Danish design factor to a new breed of active speaker that's perfect for TV or music. With the Catch One, you can upgrade the audio from streaming TV, games, Blu-ray and your whole home entertainment system to high-end audio standard. You can play music from streaming services or from your phone via Bluetooth with Dali's peerless clarity and separation, and you can do it all with a beautifully simple device that mixes ease of use and connectivity with the absolute best in sound quality hear what you're missing with the ultimate sound companion that's dali catch one search dali catch with a k to find out more get your free copy of our music magazine be there with dali at dali-speakers.com slash be there Let's move on to one of our regular subjects. What are the greatest five seconds in pop? Great music is made up of great individual moments that stop you in your tracks, and they're usually about five seconds long. Somebody once told me that the key to great dance music was just to take that great five seconds and then repeat it for six minutes, (laughs) and then you've got an amazing dance record. Sophie Harris, I believe your favourite five seconds in all the world of pop uh, comes from Cosmic Dancer by T-Rex. From the Electric Warrior album. Um, It was was a a tough... I mean, (laughs) pick your five favourite five seconds in the whole of rock and roll and everything Um, but then I remembered this song and I feel like to pick your favourite five seconds it's that bit that when you are a music lover 
the song comes on and you make everyone be quiet or you do the, no, 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 wait, this bit this and you start doing bit. the hand actions <laughs> yeah. and you have to stop everything to make the people listen. Yeah. And this song, actually this song is full of them and, and I think, you know, with various kind of um, drum fills and that kind of thing. But in this song, with its glorious string arrangements that I please want to listen to on those beautiful speakers, yeah. in this song, there's a part <laughs> where Mark Boland sings is it too wrong to understand the fear that dwells inside a man? And the strings are going and it's, and it's like, the song's really been building. And then you hear kind of in the background off the mic, he makes this little sound like, oh, like that. And it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. I just feel my knees buckle so every time actually, I hear it's it. It's actually the greatest five seconds. It's the greatest half a second where he goes, oh. And, well, it's the it's that line is the O, and then the strings go do, 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 and they climb in a way that they haven't climbed for the whole song. It, uh-huh. Like it's that whole little bit. If we listen to them on those speakers, I'm I'm going to be like, Andrew, listen, listen to this bit. That's the bit. For me. Excellent. Okay, mm-hmm. that will go on the title playlist. Sean, uh, your greatest five seconds in pop is, I believe, the drum intro to Blue Monday by New Order. Seems like a silly question, but why? <laughs> well, if you've heard that song once, you do not have to hear the uh, intro ever again without knowing what the... You, know, <laughs> you anticipate Blue Monday from that boom, boom, boom. You know, and I can feel it now. I can feel the, ha- the hairs on the back of my hands stand yeah. up with that. Listen to it this morning. I listened to just the intro and it was still as exciting as the whole song having happened itself. I also have a theory that's the sound of raindrops on Manchester pavements and Manchester car roofs. As well. I think it is so evocative of that industrial Manchester rain yeah. doer thing, but turned into disco. I was also listening to I Feel Love this morning. And although that is musical, the start of I Feel Love, mm. it's very similar. Of, right, we're going to have massive, we're going to have more than this one than we should. That drum lasts for too long almost, but it's because you can anticipate the song and it is so exciting. There is nothing that will wake me up more than that intro. For and it's fantastic because it's a total repudiation of what pop music is supposed to be. Yes. It's like they, you, you, they, they, we, we're not getting the sense that we're about to enter a song where there will be a verse, a chorus, a middle eight and an mm. end. It's you, you're out where the buses don't run. You're out yeah. where there are no rules. You know, in the popular memory, of course, they, they did it because they were trying to learn how to work the drum yes. machine. They didn't quite know how to. But that's bom, how bom, great bom. music is made. Yes. But also I was thinking of drum intros. Actually, drum intros are far more powerful than pop musicians probably think that they are. Intro to Do the Dog specials yeah. with Brad. Dum, 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 yeah. dum. And you know what's coming, you know what's coming, but you almost don't want it to come. You want those drums. Yeah. It really is that same rush. Um, enormously Lust important. For Lust for life. Lust yeah, for yeah. life, yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah. could go on and on and on, but absolutely, it almost, it's a, our tribal human instincts come out. Yes. We don't need the verse and the chorus, thanks. We've got the drums. Fantastic. We're going to put Blue Monday on the title yes. playlist as well. For your free copy of our music magazine, Be There with Dali, go to dali-speakers.com forward slash be there. Moving on. One of the most wonderful perks of Be There is we get to use some of the most incredible speakers in creation. And that sometimes means hearing your favourite album in an entirely new way. So we do my favourite album as I've never heard it before. It's a regular feature in Be There magazine. And recently Sophie Harris came round to listen to her favourite album on a beautiful set of Dali Oberon Ones, the compact bookshelf speakers that make that lush Dali sound accessible to everybody. Sophie, firstly, why is the White Album your favourite album? 
many reasons. Partly because in terms of it being a sort of desert island discs choice, it covers so many bases, you know. So it's like if you could only eat three different kinds of food for the rest of your life, you'd pick pretty carefully, like, hey, this has got a bit of this, this has got a bit of that. The White Album, you've got your rock and roll, you've got your very tender songs, you've got all sorts of, of different you've kinds of arrangements. Yes. Yeah, it's also perfect. Um, it also, for me, was... Um, just a mind-opening record. I bought it from HMV, the now-defunct HMV, that I think probably a sports direct on, on Oxford Street, um, on vinyl. And I didn't really know a lot about it because I hadn't read about it on the internet because there wasn't the internet then. Um, but I'd heard people talking about it and I think a boyfriend of mine had put um, Maybe I'm So Tired on... on a, yeah. It was a sleepy person yes. on a, a compilation tape for me. I remember buying it and partly, the, you know, the artwork is it, white. Yes. What's going on here? And it's a double album. And you, you kind of, you don't quite know what to expect. And one of the things that struck me so much then and still now, but particularly then was how funny it was, which is not to detract from how touching or brilliant and what a triumphant achievement, blah, blah. But it's so playful and so witty. And at that time in the early 90s, a lot of the music that I was beginning to get into, like shoegaze and grunge and that kind of thing, it was so serious. Very humorous, yes. <laughs> and I And I can be a bit humourless, so that was the good fit for me. <laughs> but then with the White Album, it, you know, it was funny. Like, what? Huh? And I have a bit of a theory about the greatest music, which is when you first hear it, there's an element of, hey, mm. what's this? You know, mm. when you're a little mm. kid and you see those first things on top of the pops and you're like, what? Is that allowed? You're a bit frightened by them. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. And um, that's, that's, that's what I loved I noticed it. that when you, were, when you were listening to it, you were sitting on the floor in the sweet spot grooving like it was 1968. You were doing some small shapes. W- um, <laughs> was, was it different through this? Because this, this is a better speaker array perhaps than you, you may have heard this record through before. Did, were, were you surprised by things? I mean, I wasn't surprised because I knew the speakers were going to be amazing and Mm -hmm. it's a mind-blowing album. Um, But, yeah, it was wonderful to hear it that way. And actually what was interesting from a a kind of geeky point of view is that I've listened to it on really lovely headphones, but it's, it's just not a headphones album in that way. And listening to it on the speakers, because the speakers work with the space that's in the, the room, um, you there's a certain degree of, of like isolation of, of each of the elements that I loved. I think we all really noticed as well um, the way that the drums came out and that they're kind of quite crispy and, and middly in a really interesting way. Yeah, they don't way. boom and wallop, do they? No, they don't boom and wallop. But the big surprise to me was, particularly yeah. on the opening the opening duo, that massive famous one-two back in the USSR and then Dear Prudence, loads of definition, loads of kind of 3D-ness, but also loads of bass, not necessarily draw, but loads yeah. of bass, loads of good macca action. Great Plenty macca of macca on the go. Yeah, great great um, bass and warmth as yeah. well, I think was was the key thing. I was scribbling notes as you as you shouted things out <laughs> as you listened to this record. Amongst them was... Um, shouting and grooving. Shouting what and a great guest I am. You were having a great time, yeah. Uh, Glass Onion, the strings, particularly that very disturbing closing string figure where the Beatles finally become frightening for the first time. That made a real impression. You were kind of a gog yeah yeah it's a spooky moment for Mm. sure i think i i tended to like i loved when we played blackbird you know and it's just it's so crisp and so transporting to to hear it in that way and all of us so quiet really because when you play it through good speakers you do want to just sit and enjoy it don't you yeah i was because i'm quite a ringo advocate i think he gets 
bad press, Ringo. I don't think it's properly appreciated. I was listening to it for where do we get good Ringo? We get some good Ringo on birthday. Yeah. Plenty of good, do, 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 you know. But then I think you're right about in the sense that the the, the, the Oberon speakers give you a, a truthful picture. And this record was made for sound systems and nowhere near this kind of thing. So you, you you start to see how the thing was built and who it was built for. It was made for down sets. It was made for, you know, the primitive speakers of 1968. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You get to sort of see the, the, the stitching, don't you? Yeah. And the odd bit of stuffing coming out. And that's a wonderful thing. We also made sure that we did the real, we did the challenges, didn't we? We did the, we did the difficult ones. Helter Skelter, the, the, in, the infamous Helter Skelter, properly yeah. menacing. But for me, hearing, you know, because the Beatles' blind spot, and I think Ian MacDonald said this in his, his famous um, Revolution in the Head, is that they could do literally everything, but they weren't great at heavy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and the, we, but but it, it rocked. It did. It, it rocked properly. Apart yeah. possibly from the drums. There's only so much rock you can coax out of Ringo. There is, yeah. Um, but yeah, but, and, oh, yeah. It, well, it's, it's it, 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 that sounds like modern rock is appearing before your eyes. Yeah, you know, it does. It's dissonant and that kind of thing. And Revolution 9... Which I think we had the great we had the great music writer David Stubbs, the great avant-garde music writer, who writes about electronic music and music concrete and the absolute you know far fringes, and he said even I haven't listened to this all the way through since it came out. I know that did tickle me the yeah. fact that none of us when we you I think you'd said to us what's your favourite moment on on number nine and we were like. Gotta be honest with you, you, never actually played well, it. All all way. Way. I'm sure all listeners are very familiar with Revolution Number no. Nine. The Beatles do music concrete. It's tape experiments. It's backwards voices. It's samples. It's 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 all sonic event and no tune. Um, but to hear it on this setup, where you're in a way getting separation on a thing that's not supposed to have separation. You're not. You're, this is supposed to come at you as a sensory assault. It's a it's a a personality dissolving end of the 1960s confrontation with ultimate everything thing that's coming at you yeah I th- and I think the, the, I think in my kind of fantasy world what I loved listening to about it on proper speakers is I, I felt a bit like I was in the control room like yeah. it's as close as you're going to get to being in the control room going oh yeah a, a little bit higher in the mix Paul is that you know <laughs> now it's a cliche for people to say well you know the White Album it'd be great if you took a few songs off and made it into a single album isn't that missing the point the point is it has got loads of mad nonsense on it. That's what it's there for. Yeah, and I think it's a record that you have on when you have people over and it's like, oh, 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 yeah, this one. Um, having said that, when I when I took it out before, before uh, we played it on the speakers, I was thinking, how dare people say there should be fewer songs on this? And, you know, this is a Stone Cold classic and da-da-da. And then actually you listen to the whole thing, yeah, yeah, yeah I could do without that one. I could actually. live without Piggies. <laughs> what could you live without? You know, you'd like to lose a couple of tracks, not, not, not reduce it down to two I sides. I mean... Honestly, some of the some of the rockier ones just aren't my favourite, and yeah. like Honey Pie, not that crazy about. And I do tend to, you know, I'm a I'm a Paul McCartney girl. I tend to like the the sweeter, softer ones. You leave an Obladee Obladar on. <laughs> I am. I don't mind Obladee Obladar. You are a weird person. I know. No. What should we put on the playlist? A couple of tracks from the White Album. Um. Dear Prudence, because it's one of the most perfect songs ever mm-hmm. created, ever, ever. Um, 
Oh, but no, you're asking the wrong person, really, because I'm going to say something like Rocky Raccoon because it's funny and weird, or but, you know, or Piggies even, or Julia. Maybe I'd go for or my personal fave. Why don't we do it in the road? Okay, that's your personal fave. That can go. On. Why don't we do it in the road from the White Album? And finally, it's time to add to our roll of honour of studio heroes, Sean Patton and Anna Pasha. You chose Delia Derbyshire, uh, the radiophonic genius, so you don't get to have another choice. But Sophie does. Sophie, your studio hero is Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine. Why is that? <laughs> um, another another rocking my world when I was 14 type moment. Uh, I was really into one of the first albums that I had on tape recorded from someone else um, was Nowhere by Ride. And I was like, oh, shoot, this is good, isn't it? Um, and then um, I, this, I think said boyfriend of the, the Beatles compilation tape said, oh, if you like Ride, you have to hear My Bloody Valentine. And it was when Loveless had first come out. Um, and I bought it on vinyl and listened to it and thought, oh, I see. Um, but what's really interesting to me about that record and Shoegaze is Shoegaze was kind of, that kind of lushness was happening before Loveless was released and it was as if it kind of anticipated it. And then Loveless was this kind of perfect yeah. crystallisation of of everything about that. Mm. Can I just hop in and say, I remember taping My Body Valentine EP for a friend, not that we were meant to do that, and I had put on the cassette with Jam Effect and he thought that I was talking about the music and I'd actually left Jam on the record and it made this funny sound. <laughs> That's so good. So we're going to add a track to the playlist. The track we're going to add is Blown A Wish from Loveless. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Be There with Darley. Thanks to our guests, Sean Patton and Sophie Harris. Hope you enjoyed you. this. Uh, has it made you want to divert all your money into a set of oh, fantastic... Totally. Uh, totally. Yeah, I'm, now I'm going to, yeah, mm, my nearest back. speaker emporium You'll now. have to come around to my house instead. Remember, you can get the playlist for this show and a free copy of Be There magazine. Just go to facebook.com slash darley.loudspeakers. And if you've enjoyed the show, well, there's plenty of others in the series, just search Be There with Darley on your favourite podcast app or go to audioboom.com, search for us there and you get a direct download thanks for listening hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time be there from dolly loudspeakers was presented by andrew harrison and the studio producer was me alex reese be there is a podmasters production